0: Welcome to the first thirty-minute ep of a possibility possibility of of opinions of opinions of opinions.
1: But we don't actually know it's going to be thirty minutes yet. We don't. The 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 first ETA thirty. Striving. Uh, Yes, striving for thirty minutes to get to thirty minutes.
0: Correct. Yes. Okay. So today on a possibility of opinions, we have we decided to talk about the theme of nostalgia. In media and for that we have selected four different four four different pieces of media Um, I will introduce stardew valley which is a PC game and
1: and now a console game and a phone game and yeah it's making
0: loads of money Um, and I will also talk about I also just introduce my neighbor Totoro which is uh, an anime film Mm -hmm. uh, coming out of Japan that is a classic so i'm just going to talk for a minute about stardew valley which is a uh originally came out for the pc in february 2016 and has since been released for almost every platform it was developed by eric barone who goes by concerned ape it is a social and farming simulation and it was published by chucklefish it's open it's an open world game and it took about four years to develop Um, And among the many things that it offers, this kind of simulation, um, there's mining, fishing, farming, cooking, crafting. And uh, there's a social sim in there. So you can marry NPCs and that sort of thing. Um, There are some things that when it was being developed, Eric Barone stressed, one of them is that animals don't die. They just stop producing products if you stop taking care of them. Uh, And that it'd be a relaxing game that did have some real world messages that's his quote uh it was very clearly inspired by harvest moon and the developers of harvest moon uh, are very supportive of stardew valley so this is just a cute uh game that was you know uh it was developed over several years and it doesn't uh, there was no early access version, which is to say there was no point at which it was offered for people to play um, while it was still being developed. He made the choice to not offer it in early access, although he was in frequent communication uh, with uh, theoretical, theoretical players as he developed it. And he's still continuing to put out updates for it now. So this is a simulation that is... Uh, it it we chose it for this particular podcast because it absolutely sh- um portrays a very idealistic little world with a farming aspect that's uh that is uh almost what would you say pastoral would yeah you say pastoral, pastoral is definitely it's the word i had in my notes yeah
1: can you actually tell us just like what a little bit the setup like the opening of stardew valley
0: Sure, so when Stardew Valley opens, you are by your grandfather's bedside, and he says to you, have this envelope, don't open it until you're feeling sad and lost, and you know like, you can't go on. And then you jump to a scene where you're in a cubicle, uh, for working for a corporation called JoJamart with a logo that looks very similar to Amazon's. Uh, and there is, uh, and you're sitting there, and you're uh, very sad, and you remember this envelope in the drawer and you open it up and it's a, you know, it's a piece of land, right, that you can go and begin to farm on. And that you, and that begins the journey. You go out to Stardew Valley and you start building your farm. Uh, when you get there, there's a corporation trying to move in Jojimart and it's a grocery store. Uh, and it is, so there is this theme running throughout it of uh, this small town. Sort of local feeling versus the big corporate clash. Uh, the other thing is that there is there the uh, the developer Barone decided to focus uh, on the tasks in themselves. He did. He knew that some players would start making spreadsheets, uh, having to do with who got which things, got which money and how to best break yeah. the game uh and so one of the decisions he made was the cooking aspect specifically was not something that would get you a lot of profit it was 100 about making things that would help you do other things so yeah. bonuses and that sort of thing for like when you were going to mine or fish yeah. and and that was sort of about increasing gameplay versus min-maxing
1: so and, and it's the same thing with um help me the little the little dudes in the the community hall
0: uh what are they called
1: ju 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 ju
0: i can't remember
1: oh, okay um yeah
0: yes yeah. so the other the the other aspect to it you know and this this i mean you know this comes back to the corporation clash with the sort of local pastoral is that there's uh community center that needs a rehabilitating and a local grocery store that are both sort of in competition with the larger joja mart mm-hmm. and there are npcs who go to Jojamart because it's cheaper and they can't afford to go anywhere else and yeah. you have you can have those conversations so it is you know it offers some some ideas about what um about what's good and what's bad along lines that heavily rely on nostalgia in many ways. Uh, and so we'll get more into that, yes. right? Yes, yeah, when but you yeah, you're right, yes.
1: So that's that's a good uh, summary of Stardew. Stardew
0: Valley, yeah. Um, there is one thing that I want to mention, uh, which is that somebody by the name of Elise Favis wrote an article for the Game Informer uh, on April 28th, 2016.
1: R.I.P. Game Informer.
0: Yes, R.I.P., Uh, That was about two months after the game came out. Uh, And so this is really a question for you. But she says that Stardew Valley helped her understand her high-functioning autistic brother very well. Because his engagement with that game really reflected for her the way that he thinks about how routines operate. Because it's in an open world. um, So you get to choose what you do. But it's also a series of tasks that yes. you like. It's not, uh, it's not so open that you can do whatever you want. But right. it's open enough that you have the agency to decide what order you're going to do things in and how you're going to do it and what you're going to accomplish in it. Right. Day. And so I'm curious about your experience with stardew valley in the context of autism
1: yeah well i would say that my experience with stardew valley is actually do you want you want to do this now
0: yeah. Well, I'm it's, just curious. yeah yeah
1: it's actually a i would say a microcosm of my experience with video games in general someone i was telling you know people obviously have hobbies for different reasons and well you know there's ways i intellectually enjoy video games the primary reason i play games as much as i do is that they're my number one recharge chill out mechanism they're the way i reset and what games give you the world that we live in is one of infinite complexity and infinite unknowns. And games give you a controlled, safe space that you can safely explore and gain mastery of, right? And in games, even in games unlike Stardew Valley where you can die, you don't really die, right? You learn from dying and you can do it better next time. And then something like Stardew Valley is really nice in that it it gives you routines that you can and in fact should do. You should water your plants every day. Or you won't get any crops, right? You should milk your cows every day. Um, But it also gives you a little bit time to explore and meet people. And so you kind of have this secure base of doing things in a routine way, but then room to go and, and do other things when that gets dull, right? And one thing that that makes me think of is I was talking to Joanna the other day about these studies done on cats and how they bond with people. And if they're introduced to a new space with a person they're bonded with, they'll go out and explore something and come back to the person and go out and explore and come back. And it's like this idea of having a sort of secure spot.
0: Yeah. And there's a broader psychological term for that. It's called a container relationship. Yeah, yeah. And it, it implies exactly that, right? Yeah. That there is a home that you can come back yeah. to that's safe, but it gives you this opportunity to go out and explore. Yeah. Um, and yeah.
1: Stardew Valley both has that in the game, but then Stardew Valley is also can also be that for a person, right? Where the world is hard and work is hard, but they can come home and play Stardew Valley for a few hours and right. show out.
0: and that has a specific, in that has a specific relationship to autism. It also has a specific relationship because I'm not autistic, right. But I certainly have that experience. experience. of yeah. Stardew Valley as well.
1: It, it's just a, it's just almost like a, a difference of need along the same gradient. I
0: and it, you know, and, and when we get into it a little bit later, I'll talk about why i think it operates that way but it's certainly to do with you know it certainly has the nostalgic element right um and and i also say that
1: stardew valley is a very low stimulus game so for people on the autistic spectrum who have can easily become sensory overloaded which can be an issue with a lot of games stardew valley doesn't do that right you're just like sit there and you know a bird will chirp if you don't do anything right it moves when you move more
0: absolutely um it was it is It's been a a financial success in every um, aspect, but I read something interesting. I think it was the Xbox that they put it out for. They put it out in October of that year, and it became the most sold game that year, even though it was released in October, right? That gives you an idea of how popular the game is. And it might be a little bit surprising because when you think of video games, you don't think of farming simulations as being top of the list. Right, right. Like, right. Super popular, everyone can't wait to play farming right. simulations, right? But-
1: and, and there's some ways in which, you know, this veers a little bit from this podcast, but in certain ways in terms of, you know, the mechanics by which you make compulsive loops that release dopamine in a person's brain, Stardew Valley is very good at. You know, so there's a sense in which you could understand that broad appeal, but it's also true that despite, you know, what you know the mass media and in fact sometimes the gaming press wants us to think it's not like it's not like everyone only just wants to play games that shoot people right is that they play those because that's what they find entertaining and they haven't found other things they find entertaining and i think stardew valley in a sense gained a certain amount of momentum because of how good it is That people who otherwise would not have really given the second look their friend was like hey you should really try stardew valley and then they're like oh this is actually pretty great
0: Yes. Uh, I will say, um, because I didn't mention this earlier, when the game um, Concerned Ape slash Jeff Barone originally intended to publish it for the first time, like the first time it came out, he he intended originally for there to be a multiplayer aspect, um, but he ended up leaving that out of the original. It was added in the later development, and I have some experience with multiplayer as well, which I can talk about later. I just forgot to mention that you can play it um, I think four, up to four people yes. in one game. Yep. So uh, that is the introduction in terms of what Stardew Valley is. So do you want to do something or should I do My Neighbor Totoro and then you can do your two? What, how do this you is do not this? going to be a
1: half hour podcast. I'm just telling you right now. Yeah. Um, why don't I do Millennium Blades? This will switch off. So Millennium Blades is a card game. Um card game board game uh, not a collectible game so like it comes in one box and and that's what you get I think there's like one one or two expansions but um, to understand Millennium Blades you have to understand Magic the Gathering so I'm going to talk about Magic a little bit which I did in a uh, previous podcast so I'll just recap a little bit Uh, Magic the Gathering is is the original collectible card game it was released in 1993 it was an instant hit it was played in schools and dinner tables and offices throughout the USA and shortly thereafter the world The game was exciting and accessible and had all the makings of a fad, but unlike Pogs, it had brilliant game design and great art at its core, and it never burned out. And so not only does Magic create the collectible card game format, but it does a number of other firsts. Previously the only widespread gaming tournaments were for ancient games like chess, right? And those tended to be more erudite uh, pursuits, erudite, 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 more erudite pursuits and there were a few niche uh niche scenes like uh for early 20th century titles like Scrabble um magic tournaments started to be regularly held at stores and eventually an official series of regional national and international tournaments were held professional magic players emerged and, and gaming had never seen anything like this right the idea of people playing card games for a living like we knew that from poker right that, that was a thing but otherwise it didn't exist within the realm of like nerdy games And then uh, Magic was released in limited sets with randomized boosters, and that meant the metagame was constantly changing. The availability of cards were changing, and that made some cards very valuable. Uh, One of the I I mentioned that Magic cards were sold in blind boosters, and in fact, Magic can be seen to underlie everything from video game loot boxes to children-targeted surprise toys, like the original like random box uh, blind box purchase. And one of the great pleasures of Magic is the act of opening a pack and discovering a powerful and valuable rare card. An entire economy sprung up around Magic centered on card and comic stores. And so the pleasures of Magic and its audience are diverse. Some just wanna play kitchen table games with friends, some focus on collecting and trading, and some are determined to raise their competitive game with the ultimate goal of entering the Magic Pro Circuit. Millions of people play Magic today, but many millions more are former Magic players. People who played it for a few years in the 90s or spent a decade playing competitively until they had kids. Magic is an expensive hobby. A single top-tier competitive deck can cost hundreds of dollars. And it's a time-intensive hobby because the constant release of new sets, as of this podcast the 82nd Magic expansion is about to be released, means the game is constantly changing. You have to keep up with the meta, you have to buy new cards, and understandably a lot of people eventually find there are other things they want to do with their time and money. But magic is a unique experience and sort of a whole community, and many people have a nostalgia for it. And so, Millennium Game, (laughs) Millennium Blades is a game that sort of steps into this gap.
0: Millennium AIDS.
1: (laughs) This podcast is over. Thank you for listening. (laughs) And I actually want to read just a description of Millennium Blades. From the manual of that game in a world very much like our own millennium blades is the world's most popular collectible card game continuously in print for more than a thousand years the game has seen countless expansions and untold billions of cards in circulation players from around the world and from all walks of life seek to become world champions by mastering duels and collecting the game's rarest and most coveted cards still others live by the game building financial empires by dealing speculating and trading in the aftermarket Many are content simply to play for fun and meet new friends. So basically what I just said, right? It's very clearly targeting the experience of playing Magic. And in fact, the way you play Millennium Blades is you start with a starter deck. Uh, In a normal game, you pretty much immediately go to the aftermarket and start buying opening boosters of cards, which are made from tons of different expansions, which you pick at the beginning of the game. You uh, collect those cards, you sell those cards, you trade those cards with those players, and then you build a collection which will get you points and then you also build a deck for the upcoming tournament and then you play a tournament with other players with their decks using a game that doesn't play at all like magic but really evokes its spirit and then you do that like a couple of times to show the life cycle of trading and tournaments uh, before ultimately winning the game
0: so there are lots of quote-unquote expansions but they're all included in the. they're box all included in the buy. game
1: right so the game might have like 11 expansion sets and you pick five of them to put in your game and then like 10 premium sets, and you pick four of them. So it's a completely different meta, as they say, uh, every time you play the game.
0: Right. So, one thing that you, uh, one thing that's a little bit hard to wrap your mind around is that because Millennium Blades is a simulation of a game like Magic, it includes the simulated element of expansions and the simulated element of buying and of buying boosters. And so, so,
1: for one example, like in Magic, when you buy a booster, it has. Uh, 11 common cards, three uncommon cards, and one rare card. And once you've bought enough boosters, obviously you have way more commons than rares, so people are often just like buying the booster just for that one rare card. So in Millennium Blades, it abstracts out all the other cards, and when you buy a booster, it's just one card, which is the rare.
0: Right. And when you buy, quote-unquote, a booster, you're not literally spending money because it's a simulation, right? It's, you know, I'm going to put this in a very basic terms yeah. most people know what the sims are right? right so if you're playing the sims and you get a job on the sims it's a simulated job you obviously didn't right. just get a job in real life similarly if you buy a booster pack in millennium blades you're not literally Yeah, you basically the start the pack.
1: game with like monopoly you're, money yeah you're, and it's actually like exactly monopoly money like taped together into bundles so you're just throwing around these wads of cash to simulate how ridiculously expensive magic is as a hobby
0: <laughs> and and so and so millennium blades is very interesting it's it's you know very unique in terms of you have lots of simulations in the world right but most of the time you're, it's not a game that's simulating a game right, right. so the sims is a game that's simulating a life stardew valley is a simulating a farming right but millennium blades is a is a game that's simulating a game right and that is a little bit difficult to think about yeah. just remember that once you've bought the game, it's like buying a board game or a computer game or anything else. You don't spend any more money, right. like you would imagine, because it's a simulation. And then it
1: goes down one layer further, which is that each of the expansion packs is are themselves references or parodies of other pop culture properties. So there might be one called Super Plumber Brothers, right? It's an expansion that's based around parodies of Super Mario Brothers. And there might be one that's called um, what is this Rubber Rubber Ducky Sentai Crusaders, which is like the whole like Super Sentai like magical girl sailor moon type thing uh, there's ones that are like looney tunes there's ones that reference like really obscure jrpgs there's ones that do like kung fu movies just all sorts and of stuff and so
0: the you don't need to know any of the references to right. play the game but you may you may have the distinct pleasure of suddenly realizing what a reference is or coming across something in the world and being like, oh, that's what this was talking about. And a
1: lot of these are very obscure. I remember, so back in my life, don't ask me why I ever did this, but there was a point where I watched the first three seasons of Family Guy with with commentary. And the main thing I remember from that experience is when they talked about the process of writing jokes. They had these jokes they called one percenters. And these are the jokes which are very referential or very obscure, and only 1% of the audience will get them but that 1% of the audience will go like, oh my God, right? Because it'll feel personal and unique to that. Yeah. And Millennium Blades has that experience for me very frequently.
0: Right. Uh, and, you know, just as a side note for board gamers, just because, you know, in a little while, we'll yeah. have a conversation about nostalgia. But I will say that um, the other thing that Millennium Blades does really well is that it has a lot of, it has a whole lot of things that you can do and should do throughout the game, but none of it is with none of, none of it is complex, right? So it's this, it's, it's a question of time management and card management, but there's no, there's nothing that the average person can't do. Right. So you don't have to be a, like an advanced magic right. player so to like, appreciate it. And that's it, why the game, like, to...
1: in Magic, you play with a deck of like 60 cards. You do yeah. all sorts of things. In a Millennium Blades tournament, you have like a deck of eight cards and you play six of them. Yes. It's very much streamed down because what it's simulating is not any one element, but the way in which all these elements interplay with each other.
0: That's right. And the the in many ways, the point of Millennium Blades is nostalgia.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and I actually want it to... Should I read this now, the designer's notes? Or should sure. We, um, so he says, designers forward. We've all been touched by the magic of collectible card games. When I was about 14, a friend gave me my first Magic The Gathering deck, and from that day there was no turning back. After spending countless hours and dollars on the hobby and having my gripes and disappointments, along with elations and inspirations, I've come to look back fondly on those days. While I don't have the time to collect and play that I used to, I remember well the magic that brought these games to life for me and my friends so many years ago. I've tried my best to capture that magic in Millennium Blades. Millennium Blades is much different than any game I've ever made, and it's likely to be very different from anything you've ever played. I hope that it captures the emotions of playing a collectible card game. Excitement, desperation, discovery, hope, dread, and camaraderie. Most of all, I hope you have fun playing Millennium Blades. I really like that.
0: Alright, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the third piece of media that is My Neighbor Totoro. It is a Japanese animated fantasy film that came out in 1988 in Japan. Uh, It was written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki.
1: Hayao, I think.
0: It was animated by Studio Ghibli and it was published by Takuma Shoten. It takes place in rural post-war Japan, and it features two young daughters of a pro- of a professor uh, who meet and have uh, uh, befriend friendly wood spirits. Those wood spirits look a little bit like look a little bit like giant cats, but they it originates from the word for troll, right? Yeah,
1: and, and they have features. I think they note they had features of um. What's the word I'm looking at? What are the raccoon-like? tanuki? It's creatures of tanuki, and there's also some, like, owl-like features that they have. Like, their markings on their belly and, and, like, the way they sort of poo, almost. Like, inflate. Mm -hmm.
0: A fun fact about My Neighbor Totoro was that in 1989, Streamline Pictures actually produced the first dub, and it was used exclusively on Trans-Pacific flights uh, for Japan Airlines. There was a uh, second dub that was produced and released by Trauma Films on VHS and Laserdisc in the U.S. in 1993, uh, that, and that's
1: the one I first saw.
0: That copyright expired in tw- 2004, and then Disney 2004. <laughs> yes, 2004, and Disney uh, released the familiar dub. If you buy My Neighbor Totoro, if you rent it now, it's going to be probably the Disney dub. Disney dub.
1: So it has, the Japanese language is, you know, available on it.
0: Yes, for the first time because Fox didn't have because the Fox rights. Because Fox didn't do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, didn't Fox didn't have the rights to the Japanese audio. So, they, that was never on any of the previous versions. hmm So, and so the one that you'd be familiar with if you've seen it is probably the Disney yeah,
1: one. Yeah, yeah. Unless you were like me and grew up next to the largest independent video store in the United States and got to, I mean, I just look back. Speaking of nostalgia, right? Are you talking about Scarecrow? Scarecrow. So, Joanna's been to it. Uh, is this, is this, can I go on this discursion? For sure. That um, there is a... It still exists. There's a place called Scarecrow Video in uh, Seattle. And it is like... You know, it's not quite city block size, but it's multi-stories and really huge. And it started as a place that specialized in sort of independent and art and foreign films that you couldn't find at normal movies. They also had like all the blockbusters. And it had this massive collection and eventually they were like you could get laser discs there and you know when i was growing up around like 12 or whatever i discovered like anime right and you couldn't go to hollywood video and get cowboy bebop but you could go to scarecrow and get cowboy bebop and anime which at the time was extremely expensive was like affordable for me to access because of that and then with the decline of video stores they you know were struggling to make rent but they reformed as a as a sort of film focused nonprofit and thus continue to exist today and you can still go there and rent things. It's awesome.
0: Really, I didn't know they were yes. still around.
1: Yes, they were. They are still around. In fact, there was a Kickstarter for um, to help ter- fund their turn into a profit, You know, and eventually they yeah, have to I remember mar- that. That yeah. was a while ago though, Yeah, right? yep, they're still there. And I backed it uh, for fifty dollars. And what you got at that level um, was that you could basically choose a movie for them for one of their movie nights, which they do like five nights a week. And do you remember what movie I chose?
0: Was it Totoro? Is
1: it my neighbor Totoro? Oh, because I nice. never seen it on Blu-ray, and I was like, "Ooh, I want to see the Blu-ray version." Yep.
0: Yeah, I think I was there, or we saw we saw My Neighbor
1: Totoro. W- were you there? Was that with the one with where there were a few like it was in the room with my parents? Yeah, I you think d- we did. Yeah, okay, so yes. that, that must have been the time you saw it before we just watched it. Yes. Yeah, cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um. What was okay? Yeah. So so that that movie is it is also got very much a pastoral nostalgia about it very it is so. because you know it's in rural japan and it is in many ways a this weird combination of being from a child's perspective but from a child's perspective as seen fondly by an adult mm-hmm. right so you see a lot children doing a the two main, the two daughters who are the main characters doing a lot of things that are very typical for children to do, Uh, you know, uh, and you see it with, you know, with the memory more than um, the firsthand experience of the child. So that's, it, it, it brings, it produces a particular kind of nostalgia, which is both at the same time, a memory of being that age and uh, a, f- a fondness from a distance Right, right. Of looking at that it, it does
1: feel like The father character Is almost like a stand-in For Miyazaki at times
0: Yes And and, and the father character Is his His there Is like It's He's very He's obviously very fond Of his daughters But Because of the way The film was structured These kids have more agency Than you would Than would normally be safe For a couple of kids And the dad's sort of Not around But, but I
1: think my understanding Is that that, that is accurate to the period of time in which it is being portrayed
0: maybe uh there are there are moments in that film that i think aren't accurate to any place in time in terms of you know watching out for kids um but but it's a fantasy film so it has to mess around with agency a little bit to to achieve uh to achieve uh a, a childhood experience that is distinct enough yeah. from the adults
1: yeah and yeah, one, one thing that's weird about the nostalgia the nostalgic mm-hmm. aspects of my neighbor Totoro and that I'm I'm not quite educated enough to really put my finger on is that you know usually nostalgia is inherently tied to conservatism at some level right because both have a fondness for the way things used to be and so usually you're thinking back to oh wasn't it great when when we were, you know, back in the day when we were all prosperous and happy, kind of right. Whereas, my neighbor Totoro takes place at an unspecified time in the in the fifties. Um, Japan had been completely crushed, had multiple cities nuked, right? It had just been largely destroyed as a nation. Uh, in nineteen forty five, was under American occupation through nineteen fifty two, right? It was not a happy time for Japan. Um, but it does have this weird side effect that because so much of their industrial infrastructure was destroyed and had to be rebuilt, they did, for a time, revert to being, in some ways, more rural and pastoral. Um, and so it's this weird gap time where it's after the massive mechanization of the Japanese war effort before Japan, Japan rapidly in pivots to an industrial and ultimately post-industrial economy that that defines the nation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I do think that one of the one of the things about being, I, you know, I think is also true for the United States is that we remember, we tend to remember history, and even, it might not even be history, it's also true of, like, if you're listening to music and you hit upon a song that you listen to a lot during a time when you maybe weren't that happy, you'll still experience this flash of nostalgia, which right. feels like missing, even though you might not want to necessarily go back to that time i think the idea that you know going back to the time when things were good it's tied to present day conceptions or current conceptions of conservatism like make america great again right yeah and also the gop right the gop is in many ways a predecessor to MAGA in the sense that the gop while not explicitly referring to making america great again certainly was all explicitly all about a way of being that they consider themselves going back to, yeah, right? Yeah. Like your American barbecues and your beers on the porch and your that, you know, that variety yeah. of like um, neighborly Southern yeah. hospitality, that sort of thing. Uh, but, you know, in general, in the course of American discussions of conservatism, uh, it's in many ways been uh it's in many ways only been about that variety of camaraderie insofar as it has been associated with christianity Mm christianity otherwise i think of it as being very individualist like Mm -hmm. extremely Mm -hmm. like hyper individualist. right which
1: which this i have more things to say i wonder if we should move on to the next introduction i have more things to say about totoro but about totoro yeah
0: yeah uh we can move on for sure uh do you want to do uh, I, well, I guess Joshua I'll throw, Chapman or do well, you yeah, to?
1: I'll throw this out there, which is one one of the other ways in which which Totoro is both pastoral and nostalgic is uh, the kids befriend these forest spirits, and there's this sort of question about their relationship to people, uh, and there's this one line that the dad the dad says at one point when they visit this massive camphor tree where the forest spirits live, uh, trees and people used to be good friends, so it's this idea that you know. We used to sort of live at one with nature, and we we don't really anymore.
0: Or at the very least, we used to revere nature. Revere nature. We used to take— We used to think Take care of it. Yeah, and think of it as being, yes, that our relationship to nature was one that was a lot— we took a lot more seriously than Mm -hmm. we do now. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: So let's talk about the Joshua Chapman zines. We last talked about Joshua Chapman's zines in Episodes 5 and 6. So I'm not going to go fully into everything that makes these zines what they are uh, because we've done them, but as a brief recap, they are, you know, zines uh, printed and in, in, uh, bound in the zine manner about the aliens of Star Trek The Next Generation, and they are, while well, written by an adult in, like, 2011, they are sort of fictionalized as being written by a middle schooler and later high schooler named Joshua Chapman in the early 90s. And so one thing it made me think of in terms of nostalgia, you know, the... the old saw the medium is the message right that there's he could have just written this exact thing as blog posts right but he, the author went way out of his way to create them as zines and in fact using the same production capabilities that were available at that time and one question is why and for me I think that, that zines have a form and function that is at some level fundamentally antiquated the innocence It's this idea of small-scale personal communication that's mostly been replaced by social media and the web and it's also this idea of grassroots change-making, which we're now most too cynical to believe in, right? It was this idea that if, you know, armed with the power of the printing press, you know, small people could make change with their zines. And there's also a nostalgia for this, and maybe this is just me, I don't know how much this is the author, but for a very personal experience with television or with media, that Joshua Chapman's relationship to Next Gen is entirely personal. He doesn't have friends who watch Next Gen. He's not part of any social circle that engages in it. Um, he doesn't have a, a viewing guide for next gen, right? It's just him and the TV and him writing his thoughts based on what he sees in that and mm-hmm. having, the, and in fact having like a very personal relationship to certain characters, namely data.
0: Right. And he starts out the zine as an English assignment. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, uh, decides to continue doing it. And I think there's sort of two elements here. There's, there's the element of being in high school, during that time frame and what that expression looks like. Mm-hmm. There's also zine culture and what that was. Yeah. And then zine culture in relation to nerd culture, right? So yeah. Star Trek zines were specifically a genre yeah. of media that existed. right? And, so, and it's
1: worth noting that the author of this is from Portland. In early 90s, zine culture was by far the strongest in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. So Seattle, Portland area was like really the heart of where this was happening. Yeah, and I said that, so uh, we talked about how that they were um, made using the techniques, the technology available at the time of their creation. And these are definitely a part of the nostalgia these create, because we remember, um, I'm sure you know, the zine scene had tons of drama and, and sadness, but we remember it as this like exciting creative scene. But there's also sort of an undercurrent of sadness to it for me, which is that the author is all alone. And I sort of wonder if, you know, if he'd been doing this and he had the internet, he could have found communities of shared interest, or support groups to help him with many of the issues he's having, like with his mother. But then a part of me is like, it seems just as likely that he'd come up, he'd end up, you know, organizing doxxings on 4chan, you know, with his loneliness and anger. <laughs> so there's sort of this, again, I think that maybe this is just my reading, but the sort of ambiguous presentation of what, what it was like to be human pre-internet. Okay, well, that's our roundup of of our nostalgia-related media that we have recently engaged in.
0: Indeed. And I think that, uh, so moving forward, we're going to sort of talk about these in conversation with each other and Mm -hmm. about the role of nostalgia in media. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have some ideas, but if you want to get started. No, you go. So for me, I think that I divided them into two sort of categories. Um, There's tech nostalgia... Which is, in some ways, in my opinion, um, a movement against or in resistance to neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think there's also what I what I termed as better world nostalgia. Um, and so,
1: and, and I just want to say as an interjection, one thing I I think we both notice on the internet is that a lot of people throw around the word neoliberalism without being very clear about what they mean by that. Uh, I know you have a pretty grounded definition of yeah. that. If you could share that with us, yeah, I will. You will, okay.
0: Um. And so, uh, so when I talk about neoliberalism, I'm talking about a model of thinking, you know, of valuing productivity and contribution. Uh, and in particular, it's neoliberalism because beyond that, nothing else matters. You can be gay, black, disabled. Um,
1: it's the idea that citizenship is based on your economic output essentially.
0: Well, so it's really ideologically yeah. it's it's based on, you know, it's based on the idea that your value is equivalent to your ability to contribute to society yes. and be productive. What that looks like in practice is labor force, right? right. It's how you it's 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 your contribution is your economic. Right. So from a sort of neoliberal
1: perspective, if you have, you know, mental illness or substance abuse issues that make you unable to contribute to society, then you do not have value and, you know, you can be on the streets and die.
0: But it's not because you have an addiction. Specifically. Right. It's not it's, a moral
1: judgment. It's just you're not useful.
0: It's just that you don't, you're not contributing. It's right. not. So there's this, like, implication that it's evil. It isn't really. It's just that the way it translates in, in terms of governance is right. often very questionable. Uh, because is, like there was a thing. It's for- not too far from other ethics about how people should interact with society, right? Like I think most people see society as a collaborative effort, right, uh-huh. where people are contributing. But neoliberalism, for example, um, sees uh, uh, welfare you know often neoliberalism is pitted against this notion of the welfare state Mm -hmm. so the welfare state is one that in which the government uh is has a functioning role of being a caretaker in addition to uh being an enforcer of rules Mm -hmm. so in a in a welfare state there the people who aren't doing well um, are given aid, right? Right, and because even because the idea even, is
1: that every person inherently deserves, by virtue of being a person, at least in this place, certain certain things.
0: The the issue with the welfare state, and there are a lot of issues of them, is that it's subject to internal and systemic biases, right? Mm-hmm. So the welfare state theoretically believes that anybody who is having who is struggling to get back on their feet or needs help. Um, and, you know, as a citizen, does it like, is, uh, has a right to welfare benefits, but the social biases all apply. So, uh, you know, people who are, you know, people of color, people who uh, have
1: too many kids or have recently immigrated, or, yes, yeah.
0: all of this. Um, neoliber- neoliberal governance, by contrast, doesn't care about any of that, right? They don't care who you want to sleep with. They don't care what your skin color is. Yeah. They don't care the, um, what the, their their this, their sole question is, are you contributing? Right.
1: There, there's 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 a, a I think a good example of this that came up recently, which is um, I I was re- reading a story today about the Trump administration basically going to war with California, specifically saying that homelessness is an environmental issue. And, you know, not of course, they're not concerned with. The lived experience of the people experiencing homelessness they're saying they're in environmental hazard and, and specifically what trump one thing that trump said is that all the homeless people in san francisco or la scare off wealthy foreigners who want to live there and it was really interesting because in theory like trump has had this whole anti foreigner xenophobic thing right but he was making it clear that at the end of the day he will always take a foreigner with money over an American who is not contributing to society, right? Right, because, because he is within that fundamentally neoliberal yeah, framework. Yeah,
0: that's true. And there's also this notion of like, so there's this image that was going around on Facebook of a door of a bathroom door at Target, and and there's a some, one sign says, you know, this bathroom is for every gender, and you know any you know like there's a political sign that's basically. Um, everyone is welcome every you know that regardless of you know however you self-identify is fine and then there's a sign underneath it that says customers only Mm -hmm. and the the idea right again is that it doesn't matter who you are as long as you are able as long as you're useful as long as you're contributing um and so uh one of the things that so the notes that i took is here about anti-neoliberalism nostalgia um favors a model that requires no, no or a little money to engage uh, with traditionally geek hobbies. So we talked a little bit about millennium blades, right? Um, and that is nostalgia, but it's not nostalgia that requires the kind of financial investment that actual magic does. right. Um, and so uh, anti neoliberalism nostalgia often involves engaging in, you know in, in the terms of what we're talking about, very, very geeky, hobbies um but the memories of the feelings and the experiences without the anxieties of the economics um and that is uh and it's moving moving the heart of engagement from uh economic to individualist uh and one of the things i think about a lot is that uh for example um it is very typical, you will you will see in a lot of hobby cultures, that there is a tendency to think about the hobby uh, in terms of your individual engagement with it and not the larger, not the social group. So,
1: Which is interesting because I often find that, at least in terms of, I think we've talked about this on a previous podcast, in terms of fandom, it's often the opposite way.
0: Yeah, exactly. But fandom is also this is exactly it, right? Yeah. Fandom is also heavily tied in to um, investment and money, right? right. Cause, so cause fandom is the if you're, economic If you're a fan markets. of...
1: of, of- disney movies then you have to go and see every new disney movie that comes out well
0: it's not just that you have to go and see every new disney movie that comes out you also have to wear your disney t-shirts and, and read you the books also, and, yeah yeah like the you know fandom is the is the is the economic market for yeah. media yeah
1: it's 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 the magic model applied to and
0: you see it also in articles right like i i see occasionally bust articles right where you'll this the the caption will be like i'm screaming and it's all about how some character did something in some media. Yeah, and, and like, some, oh someone,
1: I, someone on Twitter who I follow, who's a media writer, said I, they were they were complaining about a particularly bat, egregious example of this, but mentioned in passing, like, okay, I know that you know all media sites are basically fandom sites now. Yeah, because the economics dictate that you know if you're a site that is trying to pay your writers, you know, and the web is a hard place to, the fandom people who by definition are spending money are the people that you write to. Because their their engagement generates clicks. Yeah. And if you're trying to do drier media criticism, there's not really a market for that. Yeah. And um, it's all about the market because, again, you know, the, the state is not subsidizing media criticism, you know.
0: Right. So neoler- neoliberalism argues that it doesn't matter um, who you are as long as you are productive. Um, but the social side of it. So the anti-neoliberal nostalgia uh, often argues that um, something that's very socially strange because it prioritizes an individual's uh, opinion over everybody else. So an easy example of this is you take a Marvel movie, right? Um, The difference between the sort of neoliberal... Discussion of what it means to be a fan of Marvel and an individual, more like your your more your sort of older models, is that uh, in the in this model in this newer model, what you get is you have uh, you know all of my friends are going to go see this Marvel movie, so I'm going to go too. You know we're going to go because it's the thing to do, because we're all you know Marvel fans, right? right? Whereas in, in the older, more classic model, you might have somebody who's like, I'm not going to go see this Spider-Man because it's the wrong one and this is clearly the best one. Yeah. And like, what, what matters in terms of being a fan of the thing is knowing all of the facts about it and having these very well-formed opinions that often alienate you from yeah. larger groups so, rather than unite you. We're so like- when I'm
1: like, I don't want to go see you know, the Han Solo movie, because I have these certain ideas about what Star Wars is and should be, and this deviates from those. That's yeah. the old model.
0: Right, exactly, mm-hmm. right? Whereas, you know, um, so it's it's very rarely about uh, doing something to socialize. Mm-hmm. And it's more about being very nerdy and passionate about a subject in a way that is meant to individualize you, right? It's meant to make you different than everybody else because you're in the know. I, my cousin for a long time, was a Beatles fan and was a big deal about it and I'd be like, "Dude, you and everybody else." And he would say, "No, but nobody else knows the amount of trivia that I know about the Beatles. You can ask me anything, right?" And so like he was saying, "I'm different than everybody else, right? right? This is how I'm different." And that's very that's very common in nerd and geek
1: to be the importance of individualism
0: the 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 importance of how the things you like make you different from everybody else Mm. and fandom is in many ways the opposite. right and and that's
1: the kind of thing where also you know where we say the band sells out right because you're really into this thing that other people aren't into and now everyone's into it and so you're not into that thing anymore
0: well it's not even necessarily that you're not into that thing anymore so it's not that hipster aesthetic of being suit love of not being into it anymore so much as not being into it in the same way yeah right so now now it's about something shared as opposed to something that's yours and that's a different ethic and I think that when you what one of the things that's tied to is uh this weird neoliberal discussion of inclusivity right like what does it mean to be inclusive in the context of neoliberalism right um and the, and that has led to uh, thinking about hobbies in terms of being – and media in terms of being social connectors and not in terms of being and, – and, and the reason for that at the end of the day is that socializing is an economic boon because when people share hobbies together, there is – there is an ongoing market that persists. And so it's very weird and it's a very like twisty. But the way it what it comes down to is is that people contribute more economically when they when their hobbies are socialized. And so what that means for nerds and geeks yeah. is that there's this new, there's this new way of being nerdy and geeky, this fandom notion, which is, which is the, sort of the in which you identify right. as part of a market instead of this individual with these weird, eccentric, individualized right. passions.
1: Because in some ways, media has actually become more individual. Like it used to be, like if I want to see a movie, I had to go to movie theater and I had mm-hmm. to be with other people, even if I didn't want to be. And then I got we got home video, and so I could watch it by myself. But I still had to go out to the movie store and interact with another human being, right? And now we have Netflix, in which you can just you know have things be completely individualized. So you'd think it would move to more individualization, but of course Netflix, for market reasons, tries to make at least their own shows events, right? They try to be like, ooh, it's the new season of Stranger Things. Play the crossover game. Everyone watch it at the same time and get on Twitter, yeah, right? right? And so it tries to... And in fact, that's one thing you see is often social media serving as sort of the glue for individual things we do together.
0: Yeah, and not just the social glue, but the economic the glue, economic right? Glue. The, the incentive is for creating this social environment is ultimately yeah. that the market sustains and right? that's why
1: every every product no matter ever how banal is like use our hashtag
0: right exactly and then um so and so in talking about uh the socially strange form of of nerdiness that we used to see um what i wrote here is you know somebody you know in the the old model has the eccentric who doesn't who won't go see a movie just to hang out with friends, right? right? Like, if if people are going to see a movie, you won't go because you want the company of your friends, even though you don't care about the movie, right? right. What what it what nerdy was was specifically um, this hyper nerdy obsessively intra obsessive interests in these particular areas that could be social to the extent that they matched other people's interests but were not social first yeah. right and, and i first, guess that that they that, were the things themselves and second if possible they might have some social connections
1: i was gonna say from that model it makes a lot of sense the enormous overlap between Autistic autism and nerdiness, right? right? Exactly. Because it's inherently antisocial at some level, at least to this old model.
0: Right. And so so okay, so nostalgically then, right, talking nostalgically about about anti neoliberalism, it's about and the thing about nostalgia is, and we haven't really talked about this yet in this podcast, but the thing about nostalgia is is that it inherently has some rosy glasses to it. Yes. Right. There it, it almost necessarily wipes out some of the things that were true about the experience that it's looking back on and it might not even be an experience you've had so for example there's a lot of nostalgia about the traditional way that Americans lived in the 1950s right, right. Re- even if you never lived during that time yes. uh, and it's it doesn't it doesn't represent historically what right. wh- what it was actually like right. like people
1: remember yeah. it as being more prosperous even though we were all literally poor and they might you know?
0: remember or they might, think of it as being a happier time when of course it's easy to look back at pictures and like uh, things like that and read things into it that differ from what you're experiencing in real life which is necessarily substantially more complex and full of anxieties and that sort of thing
1: and then in addition you tend to you know often there's an either consciously or unconsciously filter out things like you know Jim Crow and the Korean War right these traumatic events get sort of abstracted away from that
0: that's right. And so and so when you're remembering things uh, through a nostalgic lens, what, you, what you're remembering primarily is the way things were uh, when the anxieties you had then were not the anxieties you have now. And because those anxieties don't exist anymore or because they've been, you know, um, you have this you have this memory of them. Or you've never had those anxieties because you actually weren't there. Um, you have this memory of them that isn't as stressful as they were yeah. when it was actually happening. And so you remember the time as being, you know, in retrospect, you would say to yourself, a lot better than you, you know. And that's how nostalgia operates. Yeah.
1: And, and I think, I feel like I brought up the Final Fantasy 7 remake on the last podcast. Is that true? Did I? I don't know. Maybe. Matt. You know, I, I think about this, so I think I've mentioned that like maybe the most awaited game on planet Earth right now is the part one of the Final Fantasy VII remake. And it's been really interesting. You know, Very early on in this process, someone made the astute observation that what people want is the experience of playing Final Fantasy VII for the first time. And they can't get that by going back and playing Final Fantasy VII, right? Because they've already played it. It's not fresh territory. So they want to recapture the novelty of it which means, by definition, the remake has to, in some way, substantially differ from the original in order to recapture the experience of playing the original. Right? It gets very weird. Yes. And so, like, one thing we see with the Final Fantasy VII remake is that primarily the combat is real-time; it's not turn-based. It doesn't have random battles. It has voice acting. In many ways, it's a very different, more modern game, but trying its hardest to to evoke that original experience.
0: Yeah. Um, and and so, it's all just big business. Right. So. Millennium Blades, uh, and also the um, the Joshua Chapman scenes. So the Joshua Chapman zines are probably the best example of mm-hmm. your traditional nerdiness, yes. right? Of your you know sort of like deep dive. That's just that's just you, you know, being very interested and somewhat obsessively yeah. engaged in a specific media. But even and, Millennium- and, and that's even
1: represented in in the physical form because Millennium Blades like. If you have 50 bucks to spend, anybody can get Millennium Blades. Yeah. Joshua Chapman's needs, like, I have the last set from the original creator. You cannot go out and buy a complete set of these. Because like, they're right. that individualistic. They were, like, meant to be bought by people in bookstores in Portland.
0: Yes. Um, and that is, so that's where you get into it. Um, even with Millennium Blades, though removing the economics from the game, right? So no longer requiring people to buy expansion packs and making the money simulated um, by necessity wipes out that economic contribution factor that magic has right magic is a market right and that's in his introduction he talks about it right some people like playing it on their kitchen table some people yeah and and
1: one thing he mentions is 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 you know his memories of magic not just being positive but also the frustrations and the right and that that had things to do with the market that had the things to do with game balancing Um, Mm -hmm.
0: and i think that you know when you you know when you get into it removing the economic model, that decision, um, to create, you know, when you're creating the nostalgia game, right, you remove Mm -hmm. the economic model, the, the implication is that what was strongest about that experience, right, was, was not, you know, was necessarily, uh, In tension, or had a certain amount of tension with the market and with with the with the economy of it. Even if even if the culture of that informed the game, it is one of those rosy colored glasses situations where you you look back at it with with a wide stroke and you say this time and this place, but you also noticeably remove the yeah. element that that you know turned every magic player into a customer right
1: yeah you no one looks back and is like oh man i remember that time when i threw a thousand dollars down a hole yeah you know right. or you don't you don't go back and say i remember that time when i opened a bunch of boosters and didn't get any cars i wanted yeah you know <laughs> like yeah um, or
0: like uh um you know i remember that time that i uh, didn't participate in that tournament because I yeah. couldn't afford that much exactly. to buy the cards, I right? The like, cards. or I had it a was. really good deck,
1: and then they rele- There was a bunch of power creep in the next expansion, and my deck couldn't- wasn't playable anymore. Yeah, exactly. which was a thing that happened very much in early Magic.
0: Um, and so that that kind of economic stress gets taken out, and what is sort of valued is the is the obsessiveness, right? And and Millennium Blades definitely shows that because during the deck building phase it's timed which basically forces you to super concentrate and be very intense while you're doing this right and that simulation is uh is pleasurable because in some ways because you would you know you would think of it as being stressful right because you have to get a certain amount done a certain amount of time but it's also pleasurable because it is reminiscent of it 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 engenders that feeling of being very obsessive about something yes. and doing it you know and so uh it as, as an element it yeah. works to and, and it's to also it also
1: literally evokes the tournament scene where like you're doing a draft and you only have so much time to build your deck in a draft right, right. that's the, the and and, your, and what's important is not just it's not the experience of sitting alone at a table and doing something the experience of everyone at the same table as you having the same time limit and you're all racing and looking at what other cards people are buying right it's a yeah. very social form of obsessiveness
0: yes um and so that and then you know that and then joshua chapman uh which has you know very little economic relationship it's you know joshua chapman zines very specifically talk about the him watching that show while he's experiencing certain things in his life right and that relationship right Right. and so i think that uh specifically within the nerd and geek communities because i don't know maybe it's because of the technology boom yeah. or for whatever reason i would say of all of the industries um things that were traditionally considered nerdy or geeky have really become very popular economically yeah. right yeah. like they've become very monetized yeah i've, and I've easy become sort of sell. obnoxious
1: when uh, on a semi-regular basis i'll hear people refer to you know nerdy stuff like Star Wars. And I'm always like Star Wars is literally one of the least nerdy things that exists right now. Like yeah. it is a global massive money making phenomenon exactly. in which like billions of people watch the Star but Wars movie. But it was nerdy. But it was nerdy. Yes. You know, for for a period of and Star Wars is actually weird because when it came out in 1977, it was huge. It was super mainstream. It wasn't nerdy. But it evoked things that had previously been nerdy. Sci-fi had been nerdy before Star Wars. So the nerds liked it for that reason, but to tons of other people. But then time passed and in the 90s, Star Wars became nerdy again because you weren't watching Star Wars movies because there were no Star Wars movies. You were reading Star Wars Expanded Universe novels and playing Star Wars card games, right? So it kind of became re-nerdy, and now it's unnerded again. And so seeing that weird... those, But it's also interesting that because for some people the nerd badge and nerd culture is so important, a lot of people won't own that, right? They view it from their perspective as being... The same thing it's always been
0: i think also um a lot of brands play on that right? right like you know hey all of you millions of people buy this to show off your nerdiness right like i'm yeah. here's my rtd r2d2 dress right yeah. um here's like you know wear this thing to show that yeah. you're you know
1: that you're a true nerd yes right and a friend of the podcast uh kai was recently rereading the original Star Wars, not the Heir to the Empire trilogy, which was like the first trilogy of, technically the second, but like the first modern trilogy of Star Wars novels written in the 90s and talking about, you know, how it it actually held up really well. And I said, one of the things that was good about that book is that he was just given blank blank slates to write new stories, character-driven stories in the Star Wars universe and just created whole stories from cloth. And it went all sorts of places because there was nobody standing over his shoulder telling him you can't do this with the cannon, you can't do that with the cannon, right and so they were just marketed as books said. they said they're almost books 1st albeit uh, with the star wars brand yeah and, and i
0: remember when disney bought star wars they
1: blew up the expanded universe so they could recreate it in their image and now disney will sell a book being like in this book you can find out how minor character met other minor character and was the uncle of this third minor character right it markets the trivia of it you yeah. know
0: and it markets it as sort of divine truth as yeah. opposed to... Because
1: all, all things in the old universe there are levels of canon and some things might just be like cool what if Star Wars stories and the Disney universe everything is canon they say everything is canon is approved by the holocon master which you end up in absurd places because i you know work the kids place at the library sometimes and there's like these star wars books like star wars jedi academy which are just like middle school books about being a middle schooler with a star wars theme yeah and it's like you're and so like disney's official position is that it's canon that padawan got sent to detention with yoda <laughs> right it's ridiculous and they're like throwing like jedi airplanes in detention with yoda
0: yeah you know, yeah so right uh, and and I, I think that, so, right. So, um, but so contrasting that kind of nostalgia with what I call better world nostalgia, um, and, which is
1: like Stardew Valley and Totoro.
0: And I think what those things really stress is um, often a young way of understanding adulthood. Hmm. Um, and by that, I mean that the things that are bad are not long-term conditions right they necessarily have deadlines they're going to get better uh in the case of my neighbor Totoro mom is going to come home and then it'll be over in the case of Stardew Valley there's nothing bad that happens That lasts forever, right? Not even death, for God's sake. So, um, well,
1: except that the alcoholics continue being alcoholics indefinitely.
0: Yes, that's true. (laughs) Um, But so you know, but like to you, you know, and so yeah. And so there's this way of understanding bad things as finite and ending, right? It's not that nothing bad ever happens. It's that bad things aren't conditions in your life. You don't walk around. You know this is the obvious example right but like uh when my dad died right like like that's not something that happened and then it's over right like right. i walk around in a world that doesn't have, have my dad, dad anymore right and so that's an example of like that that sort of thing doesn't exist in stardew valley and weirdly i think in some ways my neighbor totoro because it's post-war right yeah. but but there's this very I think because of its fantastical, there's this very particular nostalgic lens, and what it specifically cuts out is the the conditions of not good, right? The uh, the walking around with the things that bother you, right?
1: And one thing that I think is interesting about name it's a very popular film, but it's very different from most family animated movies, right? In in the United States, you know, Disney is the dominant force in that, and there's very much a rubric for that. And one thing that's part of that rubric is every Disney film and every DreamWorks film and everything that follows from that rubric has a villain, right? There are always good characters fighting against a bad character. Totoro has no villains. There's nobody in that movie who is seeking to hurt anybody or do anything. And in fact, the only badness that is referenced is really that line about humanity as a whole, you know not having the relationship with nature that it once did yeah right but there's not like a bad guy going around and chopping down the trees right
0: exactly and um it it both things both pieces of media and in general um media that plays on this better world nostalgia also tends to make things that are very mundane and that nobody likes to do seem very fun right. and like uh, you know homey right and it's not it's just not true right Right. Like, you, at,
1: actually farming is a lot of work and very repetitive
0: and yeah right exactly and it's physically strenuous strenuous, and anxiety inducing I made a shepherd's pie last night and I was sitting there peeling potatoes right and like it was like and I'm sitting there being like why do people do this like what's like this is really awful and I don't really like peeling potatoes yeah. at all and right? that's the great
1: thing like in the United States farm work is so unpleasant That we try to get undocumented immigrants, you know, up through the border to do the work for low pay because, you know, it's so bad.
0: Right, exactly. And so, um, you know, going alongside that, making the mundane more fun as opposed to somewhere between unpleasant and and outright anxiety inducing um, is that there's this there's this notion of safety and coziness, right? That like you're, you know. In in these kinds of media, there's this feeling of generally always being okay, of being safe. And and in the case of My Neighbor Totoro and in the case of Stardew Valley, also a a particular kind of domestic coziness. And community. And community, that's right. So I think that, um, I think of that, you know, when I think of that feeling, it reminds me of you know my own of specific kinds of memories from childhood right like I think of like you know there are like memories of sidewalk chalk on a cul-de-sac you know and in the evening in the summer with fireflies right like I have those memories right and I have memories of things that I thought mattered a lot back then that really don't and that everything was generally okay you know um and having you know it's the same kind of nostalgia of course i know realistically that if i was that age again i certainly wouldn't feel that way the way i do when i reflect on it right because during those times those things which made me anxious were very real they were things that i might i take less seriously now but when i was that age i experienced as a big deal right
1: yeah and i know for me and we may have talked about this before but it's like much of my childhood you know despite having you know, great parents and, and you know, a decent education and whatever was really stressful just because of what was going on inside my own mind and the way I interfaced with society, right? And so I'm not someone who ever doesn't really have a lot of nostalgic memories about birthday parties or hanging out with kids, but I have a lot of nostalgia for video games, or right? even at times in my life where I was really unhappy playing games that I really liked. So almost all of my nostalgia is centered in media.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that what what makes the particular pieces of media that we've chosen for this podcast great is that they aren't playing on nostalgia as sort of like a trick to get you to buy something. They're very explicitly a conversation about nostalgia, Mm -hmm. right? They don't, there's no pretense uh, about it. And there is in many cases a meta conversation, right? And so I think that that, you know, I think that that is like one of the key features that ties all of these pieces of media together is that the artist or the author isn't is aware of how nostalgia is playing into it and isn't attempting and is attempting to see it for what it is.
1: So the the one other aspect I want to explore of this is that I mentioned earlier that there's sort of an inherent tie between nostalgia and conservatism right because of your looking backwards and i think what's interesting about in the marketplace or in the products right there's things that are marketed to people nostalgically because they're just like the old things right so there's people who make first person there are now people who are making first person shooters in 2019 that look and play like first person shooters from 1994 right because there's this idea that what they did a uh, design that's been moved around away from was either A still has value or B was better. But then you have things like Millennium Blades, which are playing on nostalgia, but are actually also really innovative and new things that could not have existed at that time. You know, and I guess I would say of these game of these things, the Joshua Chapman zines almost could have existed then, right? They're they're pretty close to to home there. They're very intentionally very authentic. But Millennium Blades couldn't have been. Obviously, My Neighbor Totoro could not have been made in the 50s in Japan, right, it, It's of its time. Um, and Stardew Valley, while evoking, you know, Harvest Moon in these games that actually are did emerge in the 90s, has a lot of design understandings that just didn't exist then, right? It's forgiving in ways yeah. that games were not forgiving then. It understands what to automate and what to leave the player in ways. Like, the Harvest Moon games, especially the other ones— the actual process of watering your plants is like really monotonous just in the way it controls right and
0: they say that about the old text adventure games too that when they first started making games they didn't know they didn't know how to make it the best experience for a gamer so for example they, you would be going along and playing a game and suddenly you would die of hunger with no with no, no hint that you were ever supposed right. to eat in the first place that was based on the understanding that people need to eat to live but not on how a simulation or a game might work right in
1: early games uh, one thing I've learned through this very I've mentioned the digital antiquarian a couple of times is like history of computer games but playtesting did not really become standard until the late 90s and before then games were were at best tested by a few friends and often only played by the developers themselves. And it's like, it's sort of like r- proofreading your own paper, yeah. right? Like you're too inside of it that you have no insight what someone who hasn't literally built the game will think, right? And so out of this, you get among other things like a lot of adventure game puzzles where there's a puzzle and it's like, oh, obviously I used the rubber ducky on the lever because like, how could I have ever thought of that? That makes no sense. But in like the designs of mine, it made sense. <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't know if there's really a question here, but I guess I guess if there's a question, it's just about, you know, I guess for me, the joy in nostalgia products that don't particularly look back, yeah. but how how they also are walking a very fine line.
0: So in this case, where when we say conservatism is looking is you know looking back, we're juxtaposing it with progressivism, right? Yeah. Which is looking to the future. Yeah,
1: and I do, and to be clear, I don't mean this in like the sense we use it in the political arena. I literally mean the old versus the new and valuing the old versus valuing the new. Okay, yeah. Um, so
0: so this is, this is an important distinction, right? Conservatism in this case is, isn't is a political phrase. It's a phrase, you know, dressing conservatively, for correct. example. Or exactly. It's about, yeah, it's not about... Doing
1: things the way that they have been done before.
0: Po- yes, right. Um, uh, it's interesting, I think. One of the things that I think about, you know, uh, I had this experience yesterday all of a sudden. I was coming home on the bus and i suddenly started thinking about this particular scene in this novel i was i read this novel um it's the kushiel's legacy novels but there's there's a component of that that's very kinky but this scene is not sexual i'm about to describe um so uh in this particular book um it's it's these are this is historical fantasy right it's high fantasy it's historical in this particular book this alternate france has been put on like the entire nation has been bespelled by a different nation that is um by a foreign enemy right like the entire nation has gone bonkers and it's pitting itself it's like pitting sections of itself against each other and everybody's suspicious and everybody's angry. And you're
1: saying, so it's like what's happening in America right now. (laughs) But,
0: but the scene that popped into my head is so, you know, at the end of the novel, the spell is finally lifted because there's one person in the entire, this is not a stand in for me. Just say, this is how the novel is going. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I just want to clarify this. Mm -hmm. Um, There's one person in the, in the, in the novel whose mother is uh is a traitor to the nation and has been kicked out right but she knows she finds out this is coming and so she arranges for her son her son by birth to uh to uh not experience this right he experiences a different kind of madness that goes away and when he comes out of it everybody has gone bonkers except him and at first he thinks it's him but you know he realizes eventually it's not but so you know eventually he gets the spell reversed and there's a woman who um you know during the during the final climax you know when everything gets revealed is uh she gets wounded she gets a minor wound and she's complaining to the doctor and she says you know she says i don't want to have this scar i don't want to remember that this ever happened i'm really upset right and the doctor says to her um you know one day you're gonna tell your grandkids I was there the day that we like the day that we decided to do the right thing, right? right? And this is my scar to prove it. And it was this moment of like I was on the bus, and this weird scene popped into my head from this novel, right? And and I just like I just had this like it it was just like this intense like nostalgic feeling, right? This this feeling of like uh of thinking about that kind of story as as necessarily you know without a doubt right when you start this novel there's no question how it's going to end like there's never a question of and then you know f- you know France was you know yeah. the rest of the series was never the same you know after France got totally <laughs> fucked right like that was not a yeah. that was not a possibility right and so you know when i think about like a, quite apart from whatever your political views are i don't think there's right. anybody in this country who thinks that like what's happening right now is
1: great a, is a good thing right
0: yeah. um and it's like you know that what that book represents to me and I think really hones in on the what nostalgia does is it's the memory of you know even when it's the memory of something really awful it's the memory of ultimately of Happy endings, right? Of things working out. Because by definition,
1: the things that didn't work out were not nostalgic for.
0: Yeah, right. Exactly. So nostalgia is the processing of a memory in a way that I think I think kind of puts it in that structure of like it's not that there's no conflict, right? right. But that it's a conflict that we know even as we begin it ends well, right? It's it's the triumph. It's a, it's the triumphant ending, right. um, and I think that that is also true of media of you know in general right like in in stardew valley and in um uh in these other pieces of media in my neighbor totoro and in millennium blades and in the joshua chapman novels there is conflict right there's unhappiness there's things you have to succeed at or fail at but there's never a feeling as as a person consuming this media that that no one's gonna be okay, right? Or that there's like, a chance we, of people not being okay. When
1: we played Millennium Blades, I won, <laughs> so like all was well in the end.
0: Um, and the point is, <laughs> the point is that that is, I think, the fundamental piece of no. nostalgia, regardless of what particular tensions any kind of nostalgia has, is that it 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 carries with it this this conviction of a happy ending.
1: Interesting. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, some some people have observed that games are uh, there's a very large portion of gamers that are sort of conservative and reactionary and not just in like their national politics, but literally in their relationship to gaming and opposing new games, despite games being relative to other mediums, a very progressive medium, right? Because they're very technologically driven and it's relatively young medium. And I wonder if part of that is that idea that almost all games, right? You know, you level up and you become more powerful and you beat the game right that it has that inherently nostalgic framework and games that break from that like like roguelites are are the minority.
0: Mhm. I you know ultimately I think that the benefit of nostalgia today or like mm-hmm. right now um, is that it's the memory of a time when we were certain that everything would be okay and that
1: we might get there again.
0: Uh yes, but I think it, not so much that we might get there again so much as, I mean, in a sense, but in the sense that it's possible, right? That that, that this way of existing isn't just what we're left with now. Yeah.
1: That's what I got. Yeah, I think that's a good undie note. So um, as predicted, we did not even come close to a half-hour podcast uh looks this is looking like after editing it might be about uh, hour 15. <laughs>
0: excellent but uh
1: but thank you for joining us and are we gonna try to do this every month joanna or yeah monthly. okay so we're guys so now that we've gone back in the habit and i've got all my editing figured out uh this should sound a lot better i've worked very hard on Hopefully. the editing uh and if it sounds bad it's joanna's fault
0: it's my fault all right
1: uh so we will see you next time
0: Yep. Yeah, bye bye, bye. bye.